0: As we're studying here this morning, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, recall that this is, this is the second half of the, the, the long sentence that goes from chapter 2, verse 1, all the way down to verse 7. And just help me uh, again, or let me just, just set the context for this and help you remember the overall flow to, not only the book of Ephesians at large, but also, in particular, Ephesians chapter 2. Now again if you're with us last time we introduced this a little bit but Ephesians chapter 2 is really the heart of the book of Ephesians in many ways. Ephesians chapter 2 describes our position in Christ. If you recall the first uh, half of the book, really cuz the book of Ephesians is only 6 chapters long, it pretty neatly divides in half. Recall this, first 3 chapters, latter 3 chapters. First 3 chapters is all about who we are in Christ, our blessings in Christ, our position in Christ. What we have through redemption. It's doctrine, what we are ought, to, ought to believe. The latter half of the book, chapters 4, 5, and 6, is all about how we ought to behave, how we are to live in light of the realities of chapters 1, 2, and 3. Well, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, again, the core idea of our change, who we are in Christ, our new position in Christ That is dealt with here in Ephesians chapter 2. So in many ways, the book of Ephesians is the, 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 chapter 2 is the heart of the book of Ephesians, is what I'm trying to say. And in chapter 2, we we can kind of subdivide the chapter into two halves, which describes our position in Christ. First, we have been raised and seated upon the throne. Second, we've been reconciled and set in the temple. Now, as you'll see in the weeks to come, as we work our way through Ephesians chapter 2, these are essentially two different ways of saying the same thing. As we look at the, that two, the two halves of the chapter, it's, it's just two ways of saying the same thing, and it's describing our new position in Christ. I mentioned this last time, but one of the major purposes of the book of Ephesians is to help the church to understand their identity in Christ, who they are in light of the gospel, who they are in light of redemption. Therefore, this chapter is really at the heart of the book. And and out of this chapter, our sentence, verses 1 through 7, is really the core of the chapter. So in a sense, we are studying studying the heart of the book of Ephesians. Now, this is, again, by way of review, but last time, if you recall, I introduced that Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, is one long Greek sentence, one long Greek sentence. And we studied the first half of it last time. We looked at verses 1 through 3. This morning, we're going to look at verses 4 through 7. But don't forget, here's the overall thought flow to the sentence. As, and we'll read the whole thing in its entirety. In fact, let me just kind of, let's read it, and I'll walk you through its major components here. But verses 1 through 3 is what we looked at last time. That's the direct object. This is who receives the actions of God. The subject of the sentence, the one doing all the actions, is God. But he doesn't show up to verse 4. What he's doing is verses 5 and 6. So there's three verbs. We're going to look at them this morning. And then why he's doing it, verse 7. All right? Let me just read this section. And notice, this is what we looked at last time. But verses 1, 2, 3 describes you and I in our pre-converted state. If you're here today and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ then, you know, I hate to burst your bubble, but this is the way the Bible describes you. Verse 1, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and whereby by nature children of wrath even as others. In other words, as we described last time, we are described in this section, these first three verses, we're described in three basic ways that we are allured by this age, we're lost in our lust, and we're condemned in our sin. That is the description of an unbeliever apart from Christ. That's who, if, even if you're here today in Christ, praise the Lord, but this is who you once were, verses 1, 2, and 3. But now look at verse 4. This is where our text begins this morning. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love or he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together or made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved and has raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That, here's your purpose clause, in the ages to come, this coming era, which will dawn at the return of Christ, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. All right, so there's your thought flow. You and I, before Christ, are described in verses 1, 2, and 3. But God has acted. He is the subject of the sentence. That's the grand pivot with this entire sentence centers around the beginning of verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, did three things. He quickened us or made us alive together in Christ. He's raised us up together in Christ. And he's made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. Why? Also that he might display his grace in the ages to come. So our focus this morning is this latter half of the sentence, verses 4 through 7. And the, the importance of this is really difficult to overstate. Again, picking up where we left off last time, don't forget the context. But as one scholar put it, he says this, quote, after painting a horribly bleak picture of sin, death, bondage, and God's impending wrath... That's verses 1, 2, 3, right? That's where y'all worked so hard to get out of bed last week and shovel your driveway, and then you showed up, and then we talked about, remember the sermon title? Your dismal condition, right? <laughs> How appropriate. But after painting that horribly bleak picture of sin, death, bondage, and God's impending wrath, a bright ray of hope shines through in chapter two, verse four, when Paul says, but God. Here's the pivot of the sentence. Here's what has changed because of the redemption that we have, planned by the Father, performed by the Son, applied by the Spirit, like we looked at back in chapter one. But this is what God is doing. So here's our big ideas as we march through these verses from verse four to verse seven. First, we're gonna look at verse four, what I call God's glorious self-description. He describes himself in a particular way in verse four, which really makes up the heart of, of God in many ways so we'll see God's glorious self-description verse 4 God's glorious intention what does he intend for those who believe in Christ what is our again as our sermon title today what is our glorious destiny what is our glorious destiny that's discussed verses 5 and 6 in those three verbs what he has done and will do for us in and through the work of Christ But then his glorious purpose, God's glorious purpose, verse 7. Why is God doing this? Verse 7 gives you the purpose clause, not only the sentence, but in so doing, he lays the fundamental tenet to all of human history. Like I said, I love the book of Ephesians because it gives to you, it's one of the many places in the Bible that does so, but it's one of my favorite places in the scripture to go to that gives us our philosophy of history. Where is history heading? What moves history along? What is the big reason behind history? the why question book of Ephesians gives us that, and here 's a good example of it here in chapter two and verse seven. All right, so let me draw your attention back to verse four. Notice again the pivot of the sentence he says, "But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love or with He loved us, notice how, as Paul introduces the subject to the sentence right the great Actor who is changing all things, right? He is, he is redeeming the fallen human race. Notice how Paul introduces the subject, God, verse four. But what's interesting is that he before he gets to the actual verb, right? Because that's, if you're diagramming a sentence, right? That's what you look for, subject, verb. There's three verbs. But before he gets to the verbs, he inserts this clause, the rest of verse four. Now, as Paul is doing this, it, it has the effect of building tension, right? As we're like, well, God is doing what, right? Well, he's not telling us yet. Rather, he's going to tell us about God. He's going to insert a description of God. What is God like? Because ultimately, we're not going to understand what and why God is doing what he's doing in verses 5 and 6 unless we understand how God is, what is God's nature, what is God like? So verse four introduces the subject, God, but he gives us then this glorious self-description. This is what God wants us to know about himself. This is God's glorious self-description. So Paul here elaborates on the merciful and loving character of God. Notice again, verse four, he says, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. In other words, as we look at verse 4 and the way that God describes himself, the way he wants us to know that he is, he describes himself as rich in mercy and great in love. Now, both of these phrases are emphatic phrases, meaning that they actually are using more words than necessary in order to get the point across. And this is, again, not only emphatic in that he uses these two phrases, both of which are emphatic, Rich in mercy, great in love. But notice how Paul also emphasizes God's love by using both the noun and verb form in verse four. In other words, Paul, like I said, I've said this many times, but the Book of Ephesians seems to be Paul at his greatest when it comes to the artistry of language. The way Paul is, you know, the wordsmith that Paul is, Ephesians is like Paul at his greatest, you know, uh, abilities. He's stretching language. He's using longer, again, emphatic phrases, repetition, emphasis. He's coining words. Do you remember this? We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. We'll see more as we work our way through the book of Ephesians. He's inventing new words that as far as we can tell, we're not, they didn't even exist before Paul. At least we can't find them in, you know, in Greek manuscripts anywhere else. But Paul, it's like he's, in, he's, he's just stretching the boundary of language to try to get us to grasp the glory of God. The grace of God, the mercy of God, the power of God, the wisdom of God, all that he's trying to help us grasp in the book of Ephesians. Well, here's a couple more examples of that. In God's glorious self-description of himself, he he describes himself as rich in mercy, great in love. Now, as Paul is is phrasing it this way, he may be leaning on that pinnacle of God's self-revelatory passages in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. This passage, in fact, go ahead and keep your finger here, but I do want you to read this, all right? Let's go back to Exodus real quick. It won't take us long. In our Wednesday night series, we're studying through the book of Exodus together. And we're, we're in chapter 11, so we're still a far cry from chapter 34, but we will get there eventually. But in chapter 34, you've got to realize it's a pretty important text, not only in the flow of the book of Exodus, but as I have in your notes, Is also important, you see the importance of this text, because later biblical passages, over a dozen of them, will quote or cite this passage from Exodus 34. In other words, this passage in Exodus 34 is so important that later biblical authors, whether we're talking about the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Nahum, or we're talking about uh, the poets in the Psalms or Proverbs, Later biblical authors are going to constantly come back and re-quote this section of the scripture. That shows you how important of a passage it is, that from here forward it shapes so much of the thought of later biblical authors. One of the reasons for that is because up to this point in time, this is one of the greatest revelations or self-disclosures that God makes of himself. Do you recall? In, In Exodus chapter 19 uh again we're not i'm getting to 34 but i'm talking you up to it okay i'm trying to recreate the context so hang with me the exodus occurs right the children of israel are brought i mean supernaturally we have the 10 plagues incredible you know events that god is is doing to humble pharaoh and egypt and then god brings the children of israel out of the land of egypt in the exodus event they travel through the wilderness you have the red sea crossing then they get to mount sinai god Comes down, he descends upon Mount Sinai. The whole mountain bursts into flame. God booms with booming voice so the whole nation hears. He booms out the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words, the Decalogue, as we sometimes call it. The people freak out. They say, Moses, would you please go and talk to God and tell us what he says? We don't want to hear what he's, you know, he's he's scaring us. So God says, all right, Moses, come up to the top of the mountain. So Moses goes to the top of the mountain. He receives not only the Ten Commandments written down in stone, but then, of course, he is, he's given other instructions We called the Book of the Law from chapter 21 and 23. Comes back down. When Moses comes back down from the mountain, what does he find? The people are partying down. You know what I'm saying? It says they sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. And as my prof used to say, they're not playing croquet, if you know what I'm saying. And so Moses comes down the mountain and he finds the debauchery in the camp. He says, who's on the Lord's side? And, you know, the tribe of Levi gather. Those who are worshiping the golden calf are then slaughtered by the Levites. God threatens to leave the children of Israel. In fact, Moses takes his tent and he goes outside the camp, outside the boundaries of the camp. He, he, he places his tent outside. God meets with him there. God will no longer be in the camp because the people have rejected God. In this scene, Moses pleads with God, please don't forsake us. Please go with us to the land of Canaan. And as he's praying with this, and it's very intimate moments of conversation between God and Moses, God relents. He says, all right, Moses, I'll spare the people. I'll answer your prayer. I'll go with you to the land of Canaan. And Moses makes a request. Since he's kind of, you know, he got one thing, why not ask for another thing, right? Right? So Moses then says, Lord, would you let me see your, go- your glory? I want to behold your glory. I want to see you. And God says, well, no man can see me and live. But, he says, I will place you in the cleft of the rock. I'll cover you with my hand. I'll pass by. Remove my hand and you will see, he says, my backward parts or the outer fringe, the trailings, I like to say, of God's glory. That happens. God, of course, shows up, passes by, and as he shows up to speak to Moses, God utters these words, right? This is our passage, all right? Exodus 34, verse six and seven. Well, even read verse five. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. God reveals his character. Verse 6, the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the children's children, and the third and fourth generation. This is a really important text for even defining uh, what worship is, but verse 8, it says, Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And that's another sermon for another time. I'm, I'm, I'm building all sorts of notes for that. That's one of my favorite you know, themes to trace, how people respond to God when he shows up. That's what worship is, is when we see God and we respond appropriately. But as God shows up, he utters these two, like I said, become pillar, pinnacle passages in your Bible as he describes in verse 6 and 7 his character, who he is. Like I said, over a dozen times elsewhere in the scripture, later biblical authors are going to look back upon this, and they're going to cite or quote this passage as fundamental to the nature of God and who he is. Let me just give you one other example of that, uh, which I, I think is, is parallel, but go now to 1 John. I'm just going to read this real quick. We don't have a time, either the time to go through all you know dozen plus references that go back and quote this. 1 John 4 is, is less of a quote, uh, perhaps a paraphrase or an allusion, but the thought is the same. When we get to 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10, John says this, In this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I love the way John phrases it here in 1 John 4, verses nine and 10, because what John is saying is that humanity and history never really knew what love was. He says, in this was manifest, unveiled, revealed the love of God. What? In that God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, what is so profound is that when we get to the passage of Exodus, pillar passages in you know in God's revealing himself in his nature, he describes himself as a God of love and long-suffering and etc. And yet, as much as that was said and revealed in Exodus. That revelation pales in comparison. That's what John's telling us. It pales in comparison to the revelation of God's love that occurred on Calvary. When God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, propitiation, big fancy word that you should not forget what it means, right? Propitiation means to turn away the wrath of God, to appease the wrath of God. What did we just discuss last time? Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, or chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. What is what is us? What is, how are we described apart from Christ while we're alerted by this age, lost in our lust, and we're condemned in our sin? We inherit, justly inherit, the righteous wrath of God. But God, who is rich in mercy, with his great love where he loved us, God, as John says here, sent his son to be the propitiation to appease God's wrath. Jesus took the punishment that we deserve. He appeases the wrath of God. He evidences the love of God. And John says that this is where it's manifest. This is the greatest unveiling of the love of God that history has ever seen. So as, as powerful as a passage as Exodus 34 is in revealing the love of God, John says, it pales in comparison to the actual cross of Christ that all the more proved the way God described himself back in Exodus 34. So the concept is, again, as as God wants us to recognize that at his core, he's a God, as Paul says here, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. And he wants us to understand that God at his basic core is a God of love and mercy. But again, Paul, that's like not good enough for Paul. He has to elaborate on the phrase. Again, he's stretching the bounds of human language. And so he says, he references God being rich in mercy and great in love. It's not enough for him to say that God is merciful and loving. No, he's rich in mercy. He's great in love. And the concept is that he's trying to underscore the infinite amounts of mercy that God has. As Dane Ortland puts it, he says this, quote, It means that God is something other than what we naturally believe him to be. It means the Christian life is a lifelong shedding of tepid thoughts of the goodness of God. In his justice, God is exacting. In his mercy, God is overflowing. End quote. I find that helpful. Because the whole point is is Paul is is using language. Again, these are emphatic phrases. He's using more words than necessary. Why? Because he's trying to underscore that this is fundamental to God's nature. That so much of our Christian life, as Ortland puts it, I love the way he puts it, is a lifelong shedding of tepid thoughts of the goodness of God. In other words, what you think about God is the most important thing. About you, A.W. Tozer once said. But what is it that comes to your mind when you think about God? For many of us, the first thought that we have about God is not his love and his grace and his mercy. Perhaps it's his justice, his righteousness, his wrath. But Paul wants us to recognize that most fundamentally, God's self-description, grand description of himself, is that he's a God rich in mercy, great in love. Well, this love and mercy that God has is evidenced in what he's done. Verses 5 and 6 give us the glorious intention, as I call it, of what God is doing, has done, will do, in the process of redemption. Now, to appropriately appreciate these three verbs, I want you to just understand, most of you are aware of this perhaps, but if you're not, or maybe it's just a good reminder There are two sides to salvation. Are you familiar with this? The salvation that God offers freely has a negative and a positive side. In other words, we are saved from something as well as saved to something. Does that make sense? The two sides of salvation. We are saved from and saved to. First, we are saved from wrath. That is taught here in this text, right, that we are beneath the righteous wrath of God. That's where verse 3 ended. Romans will make it all the more explicit if we were to go to Romans 2, verse 5, or chapter 5, verse 9. But the terms for salvation and save often have to do with God's delivering his people from their enemies. Yet in Paul's thought here in Ephesians or elsewhere in Romans and Colossians, and we could go to many different Pauline passages But in Paul's thought, the greatest need of humanity is to be spared from the end times, eschatological wrath of God. The Bible declares that because of the sin of the human race, the rebellion of the human race against God, that we have inherited the righteous wrath of God. That's the bad news. That's what we need to be saved from is that if you go on in your sin and your rebellion, you will meet the righteous wrath of God that burns for all of eternity in a place the Bible calls hell. You don't want to go there. But that is your just recompense for sinning, yea, rebelling against a holy and righteous, eternal, perfect God. Salvation is, first and foremost, to be saved from wrath. But it's more than that, as our text is highlighting. Our text is telling us that we're not only saved from wrath, but we're saved to eternal life. That on the other hand, salvation is more than forgiveness of sins, though it of course entails that, but it's more, it entails a participation in Christ's power and authority over the forces of evil. It's not just being saved from wrath, but it's being saved to eternal life. So what we see in verses 5 and 6 of our passage is that the three positive verbs, right, that he gives us, what God is doing and has done and will do in the process of redemption, that these verbs are positive aspects of salvation. That's what Paul wants us to get a glimpse of, to grasp, to understand, to appreciate, to respond appropriately to. In other words, as we look at these three verbs— They further elaborate upon the content of the spiritual blessings that Paul referred to back in chapter 1. Do you remember how he opened the letter? After he introduces himself in the first two verses, and he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and the saints that are in Ephesus, etc. He then starts off in verse 3, the grand hymn that we spent several weeks studying in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 14. He begins it by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. What are those spiritual blessings that we have been granted in the heavenly places in Christ? Well, that's a loaded question. Lots of things answer that. But this helps. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, these three verbs help unpack what that means. It helps explain the content of these spiritual blessings. So what are they? Look at them again. Verse 5 verse 6. He says, Even when we were dead in sins, he has quickened us together with Christ. Or he has made us alive with Christ. The first verb, the first thing God has done in redemption is he has made us alive. He has quickened us together with Christ. Now notice this verb, it actually connects not only back to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, but also chapter one, verses 19 to 22. Let me explain that. If you were with us last week, or you tuned in online, right, because it was snowing cats and dogs. I don't know if you're supposed to say that, but it was snowing cats and dogs last week. But if you tuned in, or you were here, you recognize that it describes us in chapter two, verse one and three, as dead in trespasses and sins. And we talked about that spiritual deadness. Not only the idea of our, Blindness, ignorance, insensitivity. When it comes to spiritual things, we're dead in sin. But also, as Jesus, or the or, you know, book of John may, may be the words of Jesus, in John 3.36, where it describes how those who do not believe in Christ are condemned already, that we are dead in our sins. Not only now, presently, if you're apart from Christ, you have an indifference towards spiritual things. You are deadened towards spiritual things. Later, he'll call it in in Ephesians chapter 4, he'll liken it to a callus that you build on your hand, a, a place where you have no more feeling. It's insensitive, it's dead skin. You are dead in your sins toward God, but not only in that present sense of indifferent toward him or insensitive toward him, but you are also condemned in your sin, that the verdict of the death sentence is hanging over you. The verdict has already been passed if you are apart from Christ. So this verb, where it says in chapter two, verse five, that God has made us alive, first it goes back to describe how what God had to do to bring us out of that deadness that he describes back in chapter two and verse one, but you could even go further back in the letter and describe or see how God describes this same action in what he did to Christ. You remember back in chapter 1 when we were looking at the prayer, how Paul is praying that we would come to an awareness of the exceeding greatness of God's power that is toward us, back in chapter 1, verse 19. But he describes that this great power was displayed when God raised Jesus from the dead. Chapter 1, verse 20. In other words, what Paul is saying in chapter 2 is that God, through the gospel, through redemption, God is doing to us, in us, for us, what he did to Christ. The very power of God that was displayed when Jesus Christ was entombed for three days and then he rose again from the dead. As we said, this, out of all the different displays of God's power that Paul had to choose from, creation. Right? Or the fall of Jericho or the Red Sea crossing or pick any number of miracles that God has displayed his power out of the retinue of all the different miracles and displays of God's power that Paul could have chose from. He says the greatest display of God's power is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But that resurrection of Christ is what illustrates for us that God has that power to bring life to us as well. If he can raise Christ from the dead, he can do it for us as well. And this connection ought to encourage us because the Father has already demonstrated his ability to do these things. He is capable of bringing life to dead people. And that is what we are. And so we have in Christ an example of what God's power is capable of. But let's take it a step further. What does it mean that God has made us alive? Well, I would would suggest to you it refers simultaneously both to regeneration and regeneration resurrection. If we were to go, for instance, and we don't have the time this morning, but if we were to go to these passages and compare Ephesians 2 verse 5 with other passages in the scripture like John 3 where Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again, or what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 verse 13, similar to here, Romans 6, Romans 8, 1 Peter chapter 1, Titus chapter 3, 1 John 2, we have a number of passages in the scripture that talk about this idea of regeneration or bringing Life to that which was formerly dead. And this idea of regeneration has both a, a present and a future aspect. When God says he made us alive, it's the, he's referring here, Paul is, to the, the biblical concept of regeneration that we see in a number of different passages. But this concept of regeneration has a present and a future aspect. What do I mean by that? Well, presently, to be regenerated To be made alive refers to the spiritual awakening, an awareness and an aptitude for spiritual things. In other words, you go from being dead in sin or insensitive, indifferent towards spiritual things, to being awakened to spiritual things. Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian which helped spearhead the first great awakening, he describes in, in many of his writings this idea of what he called the awakening. When people... Have you, ever, and have you ever witnessed this? I've witnessed it a number of times, and I, and I can't wait till the next time. <laughs> but it's when you, you're watching somebody, and it's like they, they, it dawns on them the evil that they are guilty of, the wrath of God that they deserve. And it's like they're waking up out of a spiritual stupor, and they start getting like a fear of God. They're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You mean I, I deserve to die? That you know, you know what happens to? Wait a minute. What is hell like? Wait a minute. That's me. I deserve that. And they go from being indifferent to being awakened, aroused to an awareness that they are in danger beneath the righteous wrath of God. And they start saying, you know what? I need to know who God is. I need to know how to get right with God. And I've had people ask me that question: How do I have my sins forgiven? Do you remember Peter after preaching the first P- the, uh, sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? The people's response to that is profound because he preaches a sermon. And it's a, it's a doozy, you know what I'm saying? And he gets to the end of it and it says the people come to him and say, what must we do to be saved? That is a spiritual awakening. People rather, but many people still remain dead in their sin. You, you preach the gospel, you share with them the truth of the scripture. Have you ever seen this? And it's like it bounces right off of them. And they're just like, eh, okay. Glad it makes you happy. Well, it works for you. Doesn't really matter for me. And they, they remain indifferent. They remain, again, calloused, insensitive to spiritual things. Well, God, in Christ, through redemption, through redemption, has brought regeneration, a spiritual awakening and awareness, an aptitude to spiritual things. But this idea of the present awakening that regeneration is referring to, regeneration also has a future aspect, and it refers ultimately to the resurrection of our bodies and the renewal of the earth. For instance, if we were to take a specific look at the Greek word that's normally translated regeneration, it's interesting because the Greek word literally means to begin again. It's the word, it's two Greek words jammed together. It's the first one means again. The first one is Genesis. So it means to Genesis again, to renew again, to start over, to begin again. That's what the word regeneration means. That particular Greek word, that compound Greek word, only appears two times in your Bible. The concept is many places, but there's different Greek words that, that communicate it. But this particular one shows up two times. First in Titus, well, first in Matthew, but it showed up it shows up in Titus chapter three, verse five to describe how it refers to our salvation, this idea of becoming awakened, awareness, spiritual life to what was formerly spiritually dead. But it also is used by Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, to describe to this, this renewal of the earth. When he sa- Jesus says, in the coming regeneration, speaking to his disciples, he says, you will, you will uh, rule the 12 tribes upon 12 thrones. And he's talking about this coming era of history when Jesus comes back. And there is a beginning again. There's a regeneration and all the earth creation is restored back to what it was intended to be in the beginning. But that ultimate renewal is begun in the believer right now. That if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is an awakening that has occurred in you. There is new life that has been planted in you. As a result, that life is growing. It may grow and expand and retract a little bit. Take a step forward, two steps back, sometimes it seems. But God is growing within us something that will ultimately lead to our total renewal or even resurrection. This future aspect of regeneration is essentially synonymous with Paul's second verb in our text. Go back to Ephesians 2 and notice. First, it says in verse 5 that we were dead in sins, but he's quickened us together with Christ. He has brought life where before there was none. Well, now verse six, he says, and has raised us up together. He's raised us up together. This second verb is specifically referring to the resurrection. This idea that God has begun life in you, but that will grow and culminate and climax in the resurrection. That you too, will partake of eternal life. This aspect of God's work is symbolically pictured or portrayed via baptism. Every time we do a baptism, we are reenacting this in a sense, and we are are affirming our belief in this idea. This is why we believe the Bible teaches baptism by immersion. I've said this before, but baptism is meant to picture The death, right? If you think about this arm as the water level, someone in the water, right? You have the death, then we dip them backwards. Burial, then we bring them back out. Resurrection, death, burial, resurrection of Christ is what baptism symbolizes. Not only the fact that you believe in the death, burial, resurrection of Christ that atones for your sin, but you are also saying, as Paul links it together, Romans chapter six, that we too experience a death, burial, resurrection. In the sense that, not only spiritually, in a spiritual, mystical sense, but in actuality, that we will receive a new body. We will be part of the resurrection. John chapter five, Jesus gives us a whole lecture on this idea. And I encourage you, go read John five sometime or read Paul's counterpart to it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which I have there in your notes. But the idea is that what baptism symbolizes The resurrection ultimately achieves that there is a coming experience of believers in the future, which is a physical and bodily resurrection. What Jesus himself experienced, being dead, put in a tomb, and then brought back to life to live forevermore. That is what Jesus promises to all who follow him. Read John 5 sometime. He says, there is coming a day and you will hear my voice and all who hear my voice, even if you were dead, he says, you will live again, and you will live eternally. That's the promise that we have in Christ. And so in the gospel, God not only made us alive in Christ, but he has raised us up together with Christ. He is promising to us a future resurrection, but it's even, it even gets better. Look at continuing verse six. It says he's not only raised us up together, but secondly, second verb, which is the third verb, but second verse six, he's made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. The third verb that God is doing in redemption, in the gospel for believers, is he has seated us in the heavenly places in Christ. What does that mean? Well, again, this refers, there's a present and a future aspect to this. Presently, it refers to the fact that we are currently citizens of heaven. In Philippians chapter 3, Revelation chapter 3, just a couple of places that elaborate on this, but the idea is that I am a citizen of heaven's kingdom, that right now, if you're a believer in Christ, you, and one scholar uh, put it this way, that when you become a believer in Christ, it's like you not only become a citizen of heaven, but now you're given a passport, if you will, the passport being not only your, your salvation, but then displaying that openly to the world. How do people know that you're a a member of the kingdom? Well, it's via baptism, where you say, I believe in Jesus Christ, and you're declaring that to the world. And the idea is that you are declaring that you have a change of status, a change of citizenship. And our citizenship is not tied to this earth, but it's ultimately in heaven. But this idea of our current citizenship is merely a, uh, it's a, it's a present reality, but it's not really a, a present experience. It, it points to a future experience, which is what Revelation 3 talks about, how we are to one day rule and reign with Christ. If you're a believer in Christ, then you have the coming destiny. What did Jesus, right, again, what did he promise in Matthew 19 to his disciples? He says, in the regeneration, you will rule the 12 tribes and 12 thrones. That aspect of a future reality, that if you're a citizen of the kingdom, you're a believer in Christ, you possess the spirit of God, all that the book of Ephesians is telling us about in the gospel and in redemption, if that is true of you, then you will one day rule and reign with Christ. That when he returns, do you believe that? Can I hear an amen? It's got a little dead in here. All right. This 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 is becoming more and more dear to my heart. The older I get, the more people I watch die, the more funerals I do, the more frequently I am looking to this reality. Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, everything's different. I can't wait to read the headlines when Jesus comes back. You know what I'm saying? I get sick of reading headlines these days, right? This tragedy, that disaster, this country, that war, this, you know, I mean, it's just total chaos. But there is coming a day that Jesus is coming back and he is going to set all things straight and he is going to be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and everything is going to bow to him. And if you're a believer in Christ, then you will be sitting on a throne somewhere over some jurisdiction that Jesus himself appoints you to. That you will be part of this government of Christ. And right now it's a tutoring training ground for that. He's trying to teach us how to live according to his ways, to know his word, to follow his spirit, so that one day we will have our place, as Jesus said to his disciples, in the regeneration, you will have a place. You will belong. That's what we have awaiting us. And that's what this, is, this, this concept, this verb is getting at, that we have not only been made alive and raised up, but seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That right now, it's a, it's a, it's a reality now, but it's, it's an it's a experience that we will enjoy later to rule and reign with Christ. I think this is interesting, but though in Romans and Colossians, Paul affirms the believer's participation in the coming resurrection, here in Ephesians, he takes it a step further. He's already talked about the resurrection in a number of other places in the New Testament, but in Ephesians, he takes it a step further and he talks about that in this resurrection, we too will be enthroned with Christ. And this aspect of being enthroned with Christ is not stated anywhere else in Paul's writings. This is the high point. Like I said, this is Paul at his greatest in so many ways here in the book of Ephesians. But note again, the application that is especially pertinent, not only to those original readers, but also by implication to us. But those original readers in Ephesus, these Ephesian believers, they lived in the center of a pagan society, spiritism in antiquity. Yet, if they were powerfully united and enthroned with Christ, they did not have to fear the evil spirits that they used to fear. In other words... Just like for them, because they lived in a world that was so mystical and full of, you know, we talked about it before, but idea of the dread of the gods and they were never quite sure if they were going to upset which god and, you know, they were living in constant fear and paranoia in a spiritual paranoia sort of way. But Paul is now saying you don't have to worry about that because Christ is enthroned in heaven and you will be enthroned with Christ one day. How does it apply to you and I? Well, maybe you're not tripped up by all the spiritism, but maybe you are by politics. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I'm depressed. Or I talk to people who are depressed when we talk about modern politics. But what should quickly be on the heels of your depression, right? as you read that and you're like, oh, is the fact that I'm enthroned with Christ. And one day, it's all going to turn around. One day, you and I are the politicians. You know what I'm saying? We're setting the agendas. Well, Jesus is setting the agenda. We're just carrying it out, right? We're doing what he says. But we're going to fix this place, and praise the Lord! I can't wait. Right? That's that's coming. So I don't know if you if you notice this, but there's 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 a tension in this text between present and future realities. I'm going to get a little nerdy here for just a second, then I'll get off it. But like I haven't been nerdy so far, right? But there's there's a tension in this text between a future present and a future reality. In other words. I, I was asked this because I taught this same text at camp this last summer and I had someone come up to me after this sermon and they said, so are we presently or future? You know, alive and raised and seated on the throne. All of the, you know, these verbs. Is it a present reality or a future reality? And the, the answer really is yes. That though there are present aspects to these realities that we talked about, there's a, there is a present aspect, but their ultimate fulfillment is ultimately future. That's what verse 7 is getting at and we're getting there. This idea is where it gets kind of nerdy. But people sometimes call this the prophetic perfect tense. Let me tell you what that means. If you study Hebrew language, all, right, all one and a half of you that do this, the, the language of Hebrew has a thing called a perfect tense. And it's a, it means it's a completed idea. It's typically how they communicate in the Hebrew language something that happened in the past except in the old testament it does something strange that it will talk about a future event a prophetic event that hasn't happened yet but it talks about a future event in a past tense that seems to be a contradiction you're like what in the world like you don't you use a future tense to describe a future event well not in the old testament many places they will describe a past, they'll describe a future event by using a past tense why do they do that well scholars call this the prophetic perfect what that means is that God's promises will ultimately come to pass. So even when God promises something in the future, he can still use a past or a perfect tense to communicate it. The point is, it's so certain. If God says it, it's going to happen. And it's so certain that you can use the past tense as if it's already happened. Does that make sense? It's a way of emphasizing the certainty of a thing, which is what brings us back. There's this, there's, this is both a, pr- a future and a present sort of reality that these promises to be made alive, to be raised up in the resurrection, to be enthroned with Christ in the heavenlies, these are ultimately future realities that we have not yet experienced, but because they are so certain and they will happen that it provides for us present comfort and confidence. That I don't have to be worried about this present world because ultimately God's gonna make all things right. And so that future reality, future certainty, brings present comfort and confidence. But, I've got eight minutes. Let's look at verse 7. All right, Let's look at not only God's glorious self-description, verse 4, his glorious intention for us, verses 5 and 6, but his glorious purpose. Why is God doing this? Verse 7, recall, is the purpose clause to the sentence. Why God is doing all of this. Verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Notice how this verse is talking about the end times. It's eschatological, and that is describing God's ultimate purpose, why he's doing what he's doing now, and what it will ultimately lead to. He's talking about the ages to come, this coming age that we've talked about so much, We saw it back in Ephesians chapter one, verse 10, verse 21. We see it here in chapter two, verse seven. Jesus talks about it in Mark 10, Luke 18. Peter talks about it in second Peter chapter three. John talks about it in first John chapter two. The reality is that Jesus Christ is coming again. And when he comes back, that's the regeneration. All things are going to become new. God is going to start over. And again, the Greek word literally means Genesis all over again. That's what the word means. And God is going to go back to Genesis. He's going to go back and he's going to start it all over. And he's going to set all things straight. But when God does this, that's what verse 7 is talking about. It's 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 making us look up and look down the road of history, looking forward to the climax of history. But when that happens, God will show, it says in verse 7, the exceeding riches of his grace. That word, to show, means to demonstrate, reveal, disclose, or unveil to showcase something or put it on display. If you've been with us in our study of the book of Exodus, we recently were in Exodus chapter nine. This is the Greek word that is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to describe how God is setting the stage. In the Exodus, God is setting the stage to reveal himself. He's allowing that hard heart of Pharaoh to become all the harder, right? Pharaoh hardens his own own heart. (laughs) Then God hardens his heart all the more. And when that happens, God is setting the stage, right? For what? More and more dramatic examples of judgment, the 10 plagues. But God is doing that to show, to showcase. I like to say, y'all know, I mean, because at least for me in my illustration, you know, I often, when I see the word showcase, it takes me back to high school. In a high school, the halls of the, the uh, school, they had showcases. They're glass cases. They had lights shining They had banners hanging around. And what was in those showcases? What was it that they wanted to draw your eyes to, to direct your attention to, to lift up high and exalt? Well, for us wrestlers, it was the wrestling team trophy. This trophy, right, of the state championship. And then the years, the little plaques that had the year, which years we took state. And we would go and our our coach would take us down. And he said, all right, guys, look at this. We want to beat Millard this year, right? Millard is like just that close to a curse word for me because that was our <laughs> nemesis. <clears throat> but the point is, that showcase was due to do what? To exalt high, to draw your attention, to say, hey, hey, come, at here. Look at the glory of victory. Look at that. And coach would then make us run until we puked. And then he'd bring us back and he'd say, all right, look at the glory that's coming, right? I mean, it's really hard now, but there's glory coming. And we would run past that showcase all the time. And, and he would, but that's the whole point, is that when I think the word showcase, that's what this word is. That when the climax of history comes, when Jesus shows up and there is a new era dawned, there is something that Jesus, that God wants to showcase. There is something he wants to put as a trophy to make sure that all of our attention is directed towards it. What is that? It's his grace. He says that in the ages to come, he might show, showcase the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us. I love the way the New Living Translation brings this verse out. Ephesians 2, 7. It describes this, so God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us. God is gonna put us on display as trophies of his grace because it's not our accomplishments that got us there. It's what God has done through us. So we, as participants in this coming glorious kingdom that God is setting up, is ultimately intended to show his grace what is god putting on display well he's using us but it's ultimately his grace it is what he has done to take us from verses 1 2 and 3 and to put us in verses 4 5 6 and 7 right that's what god has that's a god thing that's only god can accomplish that but yet again just the word grace is not a strong enough word for paul so he has to emphasize it all the more with a phrase he says it's the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us. Again, he's emphasizing riches stresses God's ample supply for grace. He, he, he can't just say God is gracious. He says, he has to say he's rich in grace. Yea, he's exceedingly rich in grace and his kindness towards us. His grace is exceeding, abundant, immeasurable, incomparable. Again, this will be the same word that he used earlier about God's power, and he'll use it again in chapter three about God's wisdom. And the idea is, is that God has such an overly abundant surplus of love and grace that he didn't know what to do with it until he decided to lavishly pour it on us. I love the way Dane Ortland puts it. And with this, we'll transition to our closing song. As Dane Ortland puts it, he says, the creation of the world was to give vent to the gracious heart of Christ. And one day, God is going to walk us through the wardrobe into Narnia, and we will stand there paralyzed with joy, wonder, astonishment, and relief. There is coming a day where we will be granted this place of position and honor all of because of God's grace. And he's going to bring us through and he's going to say, look at what I intended for you. Look at it. And we're going to stand there paralyzed with joy, wonder, astonishment, and relief. And realize that God did this simply because he has so much, again, Rich in mercy, great in love, they had to figure out how to put where to put it. Where's God going to vent all of his love and his mercy and his grace? He's going to vent it on us and put us into the place of honor in his coming kingdom. Now, if that doesn't want to make I'm sorry, if that doesn't make you want to sing, then I don't know what will. you're just a bunch of pagans. but I want to sing now. Okay, so stand up if you got a pair of legs, and let's let's sing. I I I was struggling. Hey, which one? There's so many songs that fit into this glorious climax, but I want to sing the song. Come, Christians, join to sing. Hallelujah, Amen. Loud praise to Christ our King. Hallelujah, Amen. Let all with heart and voice before His throne rejoice. Praise is His gracious choice. Hallelujah. Amen. All right. So let's go ahead. Uh, I'll lead it. I'm okay. I'll lead it. I got it. Go ahead. Take us away. Let's sing. Come, Christians, join to sing. Here we go. Come, Christians, join to sing.
1: Hallelujah. Amen. Loud praise to Christ our King. Alleluia, amen. Let all with heart and voice before his throne rejoice. Praise is his gracious choice. Alleluia, amen. Second verse. Come, lift your hearts on high. Alleluia, amen. Let praises fill the sky. Alleluia, amen. He is our guide and friend. To us he'll condescend. His love shall meet. On the last. Praise yet our Christ again. Hallelujah, Amen. Life shall not end the strain. Hallelujah, Amen. On heaven's blissful shore,
0: Sing and let's close in prayer. Gracious Father, thank you for this precious truth that, Lord, we will one day participate in this coming glorious kingdom, that we will be trophies of your grace, that we will be put on display, showcased, exhibited, all because of what you have done in and for us through the person and work of Christ. And Lord, that makes us want to lift our voices and our hearts and sing, Hallelujah. Amen. We pray that you would help us, Lord, as we just sang, fill the sky with the praises of our hearts that are overwhelmed at your love and your mercy and your grace. May we, may this never grow old. May we never get over this reality. We ask you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. You're already dismissed.